Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Today, we got the official release of the CPI numbers for January, and there had been a lot of hope throughout the month of January that we would see an improvement in the CPI. In fact, the January rally in the stock market was based in large part on the belief that we've seen the worst when it comes to inflation. In fact, Powell has been speaking of the concept of disinflation, which was the high inflation coming down. Remember, inflation peaked, at least the way it's measured by the CPI, back in June of last year. And it has been improving. In fact, before this month, we had six consecutive months where the headline CPI was coming down on a year-over-year basis. And we had three consecutive months where the core CPI was coming down on a regular basis, and everybody assumed that we would have yet another month of both declining core and headline year-over-year CPI. And the idea that investors have is that if inflation is coming down, then the Fed can stop fighting it. In fact, if inflation comes down more, maybe the Fed could back off. Maybe the Fed could start cutting interest rates later in the year once it's clear that the war against inflation is over and the Fed won. So investors were looking for confirmation of this theory with today's numbers. And you know what? They didn't get it. Yes, we did get a decline in the year-over-year numbers, but a smaller line than the markets had anticipated. The headline CPI for January was up by five-tenths, and that was one-tenth hotter than the four-tenths that had been expected. Also, the prior month, December, which was originally reported at down 0.1, that was revised to up 0.1. So those two numbers being higher than expected were problematic for the expectation of a 6.2% rise in the year-over-year CPI. That ended up being 6.4. Now, sequentially, it was below the 6.5 for December, So that was the seventh month in a row where year-over-year headline CPI declined, but it barely declined. It only declined by one-tenth. And this may, in fact, be the trough 
of that so-called disinflation. Because maybe in the month of February, we're going to print a number north of 6.4, which may mean that we've turned the corner and the transitory period of disinflation is over and we're going to start printing consecutively higher headline CPI numbers. The same might be true for the core. You take out food and energy. The expectation was for up 0.3. We got up 0.4. And in fact, the December number, which was initially reported at up 0.3, that was also revised to up 0.4. So both of those months slightly hotter than expected. And the year-over-year increase in the core came out at 5.6, once again, slightly above the 5.5% that had been expected. Yes, it was below the 5.7% for December, but barely below. And again, maybe February's number is going to print north of 5.6, again, indicating that the trend of improving CPI may have come to an end, and now we're going to start to see the numbers getting worse. In fact, when I was watching this report on CNBC, they started talking about a new concept called the super core. And I really hadn't paid any attention to this. I'm not really sure when they invented it. But the super core is supposed to focus in on services. So you take the normal core, which excludes food and energy, and then you take out shelter to get that super core. So in other words, they want to try to measure inflation without the three most important parts, food, energy, and shelter. Once you take those out, there's really not that much left. Apparently, that's what they want to focus on now. First of all, even when they were focusing on shelter, the number was wrong because they weren't using actual shelter. I've talked about that a lot on the podcast. They're not using actual rents. They're not using actual real estate prices. They use owner's equivalent rent, which only captures a fraction of what's actually happening with shelter. But now they don't even want to count that. They want to just look at the numbers excluding shelter, energy, and food. And there you had a rise of just 0.2 and the year over year rise was four. So that's supposedly as some kind of consolation. Maybe Fed governors can sleep a little sounder at night knowing that if you strip out food, energy, and shelter, that year over year inflation is only up 4%. 4% is still a big number. It's still double the Fed's 2% target, and that's after you take out everything that's important. And by the way, the whole idea of looking at year-over-year core makes no sense whatsoever. It makes even less sense when you're going to strip out rents and other shelter costs. But supposedly, the reason they started focusing on the core was that food and energy are considered to be volatile. And so when you're looking at the inflation numbers on a monthly basis— You want to pay more attention to the core than the headline number because there could be a lot of noise. Energy or food prices could be up big one month, down big the next month. And so you don't want to look at this volatile series that can be all over the place month to month. You want to focus on more stable prices. So you look at the core. But when you start looking at inflation numbers year over year, that's when looking at the core means nothing. You're just trying to minimize inflation's impact by ignoring food and energy. Because even if food and energy prices are more volatile than other prices, that's on a monthly basis. On a yearly basis, you've already smoothed out that monthly volatility. So if you see a big increase in food and energy prices happening yearly, 
and maybe many years in a row, you can't just dismiss that and say, well, we're not going to focus on that. We're going to toss it out and we're going to just look at the core. That's because when you have annual increases in food and energy, that's not noise. That's a trend. When food and energy prices and now shelter prices are really going up, it's possible that that can help push down the price of other things because when you spend more money on those necessities, you have less money left over to buy the luxuries. And so those prices may come down, but the overall price level is going up because of food, energy, and shelter. So you can't ignore that and say, well, if we take out all this stuff, the price of these other things isn't rising that much. Well, number one, one of the reasons is because people are spending so much money on food, energy, and now shelter, they don't have enough money left over for that other stuff. So they're still spending a lot more. They're just spending it on stuff that used to be a lot less expensive. But now because inflation made that other stuff so expensive, you've got to cut back in other areas. Now, of course, eventually the areas where consumers are cutting back, those prices are going to go up too. Because once a lot of the excess inventory is cleared out, then the businesses are going to react with lower supply and then the prices are going to go up. So what you might see is that a big increase in food and energy and shelter prices may cause other prices to fall initially those declines are likely to be short-lived. And that's what we're focusing on now. We're trying to say, hey, let's not count food and energy, even though we're looking at it on a year-over-year basis. Now, of course, we did get a little help on the headline number because we got a big pullback in oil prices and other commodities. But part of that was due to the Biden administration's decision to sell oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now, that is not normal market forces. That is extra supply that normally wouldn't have been on the market, and it was only there because we decided to open up these spigots and deplete our strategic reserve, which in January of 2022 was better than 600 million barrels. As of today, it's down to 370 million barrels. That's almost a 40% reduction in those reserves in just over a year. And for a while, the Biden administration was talking about buying back some of the oil that it has sold and replenishing those depleted reserves. Yesterday, the Biden administration announced that they were going to release another 26 million barrels on top of what they've already released. Now, why are they doing that? Well, because oil prices were back above $80 a barrel and it looked like they were headed higher. And so the Biden administration decided, nope, we better sell some more reserves. They can only play this game for so long because at some point they will completely exhaust the reserves if they're willing to take it that far to the point where we have no strategic reserves at all. Because if we get that far, obviously oil prices can go way up. And what happens if we decide we need to have some strategic reserves and we have to start buying them? After we've taken the tank down to empty, imagine what that's going to do to the price of oil. Because now, not only are you going to have all of the normal demand from all the people around the world who need oil for normal purposes, but adding to that is going to be the demand coming from the U.S. government trying to replenish the 600 million barrels that it dumped on the market in an effort to suppress the price of oil. Now, I'm sure the government is going to lose on this trade. 
They are not going to end up making a profit. They're not going to buy the oil back cheaper than what they sold it at. They're going to end up paying much higher prices for the oil that they buy than they receive for the oil that they sold. And I think the same thing is going to happen on balance to American consumers. They're going to end up paying more for oil because of what Biden did. Now, a lot of that was motivated by desire to get the price down for the midterm elections, which he succeeded in doing. And in fact, maybe had the Biden administration not sold any oil, maybe the Republicans would have got the Senate as well as the House. We never know. But clearly it helped. But in the long run, it's going to hurt. But Biden obviously didn't care about that. The longest run he could see is the next elections. And now he's looking at his own potential reelection and he's looking at oil prices going up and he's trying to do something to stop it. But if he continues to do this, by the end of his term, we will be out of strategic reserves and this game will be over. And I think the OPEC nations know that. I think they're happy to see America get rid of all its strategic reserves because that puts us in a much more vulnerable position than we otherwise would have been had we still had those reserves. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. Now, when it comes to inflation, you generally have two camps that comprise the mainstream of economic and investment thought. You have those people that think that what the Fed has done is sufficient to do the job. In fact, some of those people think that the Fed has overdone it, that they've actually tightened too much, that they've misjudged inflation on both sides. That first, the Fed was wrong in its assessment of how bad inflation was and in thinking it was transitory. But then once they discovered that they were wrong about that and inflation was stronger and less transitory than they thought, they made another mistake by even overreacting and tightening too much. And now there are people who think that the inflation rate is going to go down too much, that the Fed is going to overshoot its 2% target. Now you have another camp that believes that, no, the Fed hasn't quite done enough yet, and that inflation is going to surprise the Fed by being hotter than is anticipated. And this camp attributes that mainly to the labor market. They think that because the labor market is still strong, we have low unemployment, we have all this job creation, that that's why inflation isn't going to come down because the Fed has not succeeded in weakening the labor market. Now, as usual, both of these camps are wrong. Neither of them got it right. 
Now, the second camp that believes that inflation is going to end up surprising the upside, they're correct on that. They're just correct for the wrong reason. And they're also underestimating just how much to the upside it's going to surprise everybody. But let me go back and talk about the first camp first, because they have no idea what they're talking about. Right? These are the guys that think that the war is over and that the Fed has not only won, but it's done too much. There is no chance that is going to happen. And again, that's because the inflation that we're experiencing, at least the results of that inflation, the increase in prices, this does not have its roots in the pandemic response, in the money that was printed since March of 2020, or the shortage of goods or supply chain bottlenecks that we had during that time period. Because you have to go all the way back, even really further than 2008. But that's where it really started in earnest after the financial crisis or early 2009, when the Fed first adopted a 0% interest rate policy and quantitative easing. So the Fed has been filling the pipeline with inflation for well over a decade. And now we're just really seeing the, the consequences. They've been there all along. It was just harder to spot them because they were hiding beneath a rigged CPI. So consumer prices were, in fact, rising faster than 2%. We were just not getting accurate numbers from the government. But also a lot of that inflation was hiding in plain sight in assets, in stock prices, in real estate prices, in bond prices, in the price of cryptocurrencies, and all sorts of other collectibles. It's just that nobody cared when they thought inflation was making them richer. They didn't start caring until it was making them poorer. But this problem is a long time in the making, and it's not going to be solved with a year of rate hikes, especially when those rate hikes have yet to deliver any type of meaningful change in consumption and saving patterns among the people or the government. People are still spending all of their paychecks and then some. The savings have been depleted. Credit card debt is record high. And what about the government? We just passed the budget-busting continuous resolution on spending. That is an inflationary policy, basically by design. And though the Federal Reserve has tightened policy, it still hasn't moved the Fed funds rate above the inflation rate. And in fact, the rate that Americans get on their savings, those rates have barely increased at the bank. No American could put money in the bank and earn a yield that exceeds even the official inflation rate, let alone the actual inflation rate. And remember, in order to really bend the inflation curve, we have to bend both the consumption curve and the savings curve. So by raising interest rates, the Fed can bring about less demand and more supply. Those are the forces that are going to bring prices down. But the Fed has not achieved that because it has not raised interest rates nearly enough for policy to be restricted. Now, everybody keeps saying, oh, no, we need to throw people out of work, right? That is the second camp, the camp that thinks that the Fed is not going to succeed in its inflation fight because it hasn't succeeded in creating enough unemployment. They're looking for higher unemployment to reduce demand, but that's not the way to reduce demand. You don't want to put people out of work. They need to be productively employed and producing goods and services. What we want them to do is not stop working, but stop spending. Now, clearly, they're not going to stop spending completely, but they have to 
cut back on their spending significantly so that they can increase their savings. And let's say that 100% of the people who were employed decide to cut back on their spending by 10%. They haven't cut back on their earning or their work. They're just spending 10% less of their income. Well, isn't that the same thing? Is 10% people losing their jobs completely? In fact, it's obviously much better than that because everybody is still working. But when people lose their jobs, they don't stop spending completely. They're still spending something and they're spending unemployment benefits. They're spending food stamps and they're spending down their savings, right? Savings are going down as unemployment goes up. And so that's being spent. And so it's an even smaller impact than the impact that we would have if people just remained employed but reduced their spending. But they are not doing that. They are spending everything they can. Why? Because the credit is still there. There's plenty of consumer credit for workers to live beyond their means. And there's no real incentive for those workers to save now because their savings are going to erode away through inflation, meaning that they're not going to be better off. If they put some money aside today and they go to spend it tomorrow, they will be able to buy less stuff because even with the interest that they earn on their savings, it's not going to keep pace with the increase in prices. What the Federal Reserve has to do is create a massive incentive to defer consumption, to save now and spend later, because then you can spend your interest in addition to your principal, and that interest is going to give you more purchasing power than what you would lose to inflation and taxes. The Fed has not done that, nor has the Fed succeeded in forcing the government to cut spending. If the Federal Reserve allowed a far more significant increase in interest rates, that would be putting a lot of pressure on the government, on Congress, to cut government spending to reduce the deficit. A, because the deficit was more expensive to finance, but B, because those big deficits were actually helping to push up interest rates even higher, not only affecting the federal budget, but affecting everybody else. By the way, the camp that believes that inflation is not coming down because the labor market is still too strong are wrong again in their misinterpretation of the labor market as being strong. First of all, even if we had a strong labor market, a strong labor market doesn't cause inflation. If the labor market is strong because workers are productive, that helps keep prices down. The reality is we don't actually have a strong labor market. We have a very weak labor market hiding beneath the surface of these supposedly strong numbers because all we're paying attention to is the number of jobs that are being created every month. We are not looking at the character of those jobs. We are not paying attention to the fact that there are fewer people who have full-time jobs today than who had them 10 months ago. That is not a strong labor market when people are losing full-time jobs and replacing them with multiple lower-paying part-time jobs to either replace the full-time job that they lost or supplement the full-time job that they still have because their paychecks are being eroded by inflation. And that is exactly the type of labor market that we have now, and that can hardly be characterized as strong. I was listening to the talk shows on Sunday. Chuck Schumer was on This Week with Stephanopoulos talking about the need to raise the debt ceiling. And his main pitch on why we had to raise the debt ceiling was that if we failed to raise the debt ceiling, it was going to hurt 
American families because it was going to end up leading to higher interest costs for everybody, not just for the U.S. government, but that Americans were going to have higher mortgage rates if we didn't increase the debt ceiling. The opposite is actually what's true. The reason that interest rates are higher than they otherwise would be is because we have so much debt. It's because we have so much debt that we are now at the debt ceiling and that we are trying to raise it. The worst thing that government can do if it's worried about keeping interest costs lower in the long run, the worst thing they could do is raise the debt ceiling because raising the debt ceiling enables more debt. And the more debt we have, ultimately, the higher the interest rates are going to be on servicing that debt. And if the rates go up for the U.S. government, they go up for American families. But the biggest burden that Chuck Schumer is ignoring is that American families are the ones who are on the hook to repay the national debt. Why isn't Chuck Schumer worried about that? He's so concerned about what might happen to American households if we don't increase the debt. If we don't raise the debt ceiling and allow the government to pile on more debt, he's worried that that may hurt American families because it may make their interest rates go up. Well, what about how it hurts American families by increasing the burden that they bear for repaying that debt? The government is taking on this debt in the name of the people. So all these American families that Chuck Schumer is pretending that he cares about He doesn't give a damn about him because if he did care about him, he wouldn't be raising the debt ceiling. The national debt is the equivalent of a national credit card. And Americans have been getting a lot of government that they haven't paid for yet, but they still owe the money. And so what the national debt really represents are future tax increases on American families. So we're trading taxes today for higher taxes tomorrow because not only do we have to pay the taxes to pay for the government, that we haven't already paid for, but we have to pay the added cost of the interest because we borrowed to pay for government instead of paying for it right away. Same thing as a credit card. If you buy something with cash, it's cheaper than buying it with your credit card because not only do you have to pay the principal, but you also have to pay back the interest on the money you borrowed because you didn't pay for the product in the first place. So all the government that we are not paying for, that we are putting on the national credit card, is going to end up costing us even more money because we financed it and Chuck Schumer couldn't care less. The same thing applies to Social Security because I heard on that same interview Chuck Schumer reiterating what Biden said in his State of the Union address that the Democrats are not going to cut Social Security. And Chuck Schumer said, yes, we're not going to cut Social Security. Well, anybody who is claiming that they don't want to cut Social Security but who also is going to vote to raise the debt ceiling is lying. Because if you're raising the debt ceiling, you are guaranteeing cuts to Social Security. Because Social Security is just another debt that the government owes. That's part of the unfunded liability. So it's not in the $31.5 trillion that the government officially owes. It's in the much bigger number that's something like $100 trillion that it unofficially owes when you include debts like Social Security. But the more money the government owes, the less likely it is to pay it back. And in fact, the way the government ends up repudiating debt that it can't repay is through inflation. And so the more debt we have, the greater the likelihood that that debt will be inflated away 
and that amounts to cuts in Social Security. In fact, I often talk about how the government has rigged the CPI and that it no longer properly measures inflation. Well, one of the reasons that they rejiggered it back in the early 1990s is because of Social Security. They were actually looking for a way to cut Social Security, but of course, no politician is going to vote to cut Social Security. So they knew that every year, Social Security benefits are adjusted upward by a COLA that is tied to the CPI. So they came up with the idea of changing the CPI because if the CPI was a lower number, then the COLAs would be smaller each year. And so they would effectively be reducing Social Security benefits without having to vote to cut them. They were just going to change the CPI. Now, they couldn't tell the American public, we're going to change the CPI so we can have lower increases in your Social Security. That wouldn't fly at the polls. So what these guys claimed was that the CPI was overstating inflation. That was the problem. For all these years, we've been overstating inflation. It hasn't been nearly as big a problem as we thought because we have this measure that is overstating it, and we're going to fix it. And they fixed it. Literally, the fix is in. And as a result of this fix, instead of overstating inflation, which it probably never did, now the CPI is understating inflation. And so every year, if the CPI understates inflation, every year there is a cut to Social Security benefits because the COLAs do not go up as much as the cost of living. And now as a result of even higher inflation, those annual cuts are going to be greater. For example, I think in January, we had one of the biggest increases ever in Social Security. It's like 8% increase because of the CPI. But the actual increase in the cost of living was probably around 16%. Whatever the official rate is, you basically double it. And that's probably about right. And that is a huge cut to Social Security benefits, despite the fact that we increased them. Now, of course, Congress refuses to actually do anything about the Social Security problem to try to preserve it for people who really need it and phase it out for people who don't. Because the cuts to Social Security were the same whether you're Warren Buffett or Warren Buffett's retired housekeeper, you're treated the same. Everybody got the same 8% increase in their benefits, so everybody had the same 8% real reduction in the real value of those benefits. What we need is real entitlement reform so people like Warren Buffett don't get any Social Security at all. That is the only way that you're going to preserve any semblance of this Ponzi scheme for the people who unfortunately really depend on it. And the reason they depend on it was because government created this dependency. What we need to do for younger people is completely get them out of this Ponzi system and let them know from scratch that they need to save for their own retirement and that they're off the hook paying for the retirements of other people. But unfortunately, we have a number of people who are destitute or would be destitute, but for Social Security. And the only reason for that is government. And so for some of these people who really depend on it, we need to have a way to take care of them as we're phasing out the system. But we have to recognize that what people are receiving when they get a Social Security benefit is no different than a welfare check, because it doesn't matter what they believe they paid in. Nobody paid into anything, any more than people who gave money to Bernie Madoff were entitled to their returns. 
Social Security was a fraud from day one. It was supposed to be an insurance program. There were supposed to be real reserves. It was not supposed to be a Ponzi scheme, but that's what it was. In fact, it was a Ponzi from the beginning. It's just that the government lied to the American people about the nature of the program. That's why it's called insurance. That's why they called it a premium. That's why they call it benefits. They're trying to use terminology that people had with insurance. The money was supposedly put into a trust fund. You know, there were actuaries. So everything about Social Security was designed to make it look like insurance, except it didn't operate like insurance. It operated like a Ponzi scheme because a legitimate insurance company takes money in and then invests it, and then it pays the premiums out of the returns from those investments. But the government didn't invest any of the Social Security money. It spent it all. Every dime that the government collected in Social Security taxes was spent on national defense, was spent on other welfare programs, was spent on farm subsidies or whatever. It just goes into the general revenue. Now, before it goes into the general revenue, it goes into these so-called trust funds. But the trust funds are trust funds in name only because the minute the Social Security tax revenue goes into the trust fund, the government borrows it right out and writes itself an IOU in the form of a U.S. Treasury bond. The only asset in the trust fund is a treasury bill or a treasury bond. But that's not an asset to the government because it's a simultaneous liability. It cancels itself out. It's nothing. Now, had the U.S. government invested the money collected in Social Security taxes in German government bonds or Swiss government bonds or Australian government bonds, then it would be a real asset. Had it invested that money in corporate bonds, had it invested it in the stock market or something like that, then there would be a real reserve there out of which to pay claims to retirees. But none of it was actually invested. All the money was spent, except the government put a phony IOU in a make-believe trust fund. And that was all to make it look like there was actual insurance. Now, there are a lot of people who think, but wait a minute, Peter, those treasury bonds are still assets because the government could sell them. Well, sure, the government could always sell treasury bonds. It doesn't need a trust fund to do that. The government just has to worry about the debt ceiling, which it can raise whenever it wants. But what difference does it make? Let's assume there were no trust funds at all. How would Social Security be financed exactly the way it's being financed right now, even though there are trust funds? Think about it. What if you just wrote yourself a check? If you wrote yourself a check for $100,000 and deposited it in your bank, would that be a $100,000 asset? No. In fact, don't deposit it in your bank because obviously it'll bounce. Take the $100,000 check and just put it in your underwear drawer and just leave it there. Could you count that as having $100,000 just because you got that check? No, because you are obligated to pay the $100,000 to yourself. Now, if you write a check for $100,000 and you give it to another person, that asset, assuming the check won't bounce, that is a real asset to the other person because it's a liability to you. But you can't count a check that's your own liability as simultaneously being your own asset. And that's what the U.S. government does with the Social Security trust funds. Yes, a treasury bond is an asset when it's held by somebody in the private sector or when it's held by a foreign government. But when a treasury bond is held by the U.S. government, it ceases to be an asset. 
it cancels itself out because it's also its liability. And so it's nothing. And so the government has no reserves out of which to pay any Social Security benefits. So where does the money come from to pay Social Security benefits? It comes from the people who are currently paying taxes. Some of the tax revenues are Social Security, but the rest is from income tax and other taxes. Because as of now, the government doesn't even collect enough money from the people who are working to pay the people who are collecting. So the Ponzi scheme is already falling apart. This intergenerational chain letter is running out of chain. For many years, there was a surplus where the government collected more in taxes than it paid out. And so that's how they built up these phony trust funds. But now the phony trust funds are being depleted because in reality, the government doesn't collect enough. You have this decline in labor force participation and you have more people who have sought early retirement. I think that trend accelerated as a result of COVID. And so you have a bigger net loss in Social Security. And so all these politicians who are claiming that they care about Social Security, they want to protect Social Security, but then they're also voting to increase the debt ceiling and they want to have more inflation, they are voting to destroy the value of those Social Security benefits because that's what inflation is going to do. And yes, some of that value will be recovered from the COLAs, but the COLAs are never going to capture the entire rate of increase in prices. But what these COLAs will do is contribute to the inflationary spiral because where does the government get the money to increase everybody's Social Security benefits? They haven't increased anybody's taxes and they're already running at a deficit. So where is the extra money coming from to pay these additional benefits? Ultimately, it's going to be printed. It's going to come from the Federal Reserve. So they're going to create more inflation in order to fund these benefits, which is going to help drive prices even higher. And it's a self-perpetuating spiral. But retirees and everybody else, for that matter, are going to fall further and further behind. In conclusion, turning to the financial markets, they seem to take these numbers in stride, although there was some intraday volatility. The market was swinging up and down. But by the time they rang the closing bell, the Dow Jones was off a little over 150 points, which was just under a half a percent. The S&P 500 was basically flat and the Nasdaq was actually up about half a percent. So tech stocks really shrugging off the bad news. Bond prices slipped a bit. Yields edged higher. The U.S. dollar was lower across the board, although only marginally so. And gold rallied about a buck, although there was a lot of noise intraday. Gold was up over $10, down over $10, but finished relatively unchanged. But I think investors are still being much too complacent in their willingness to challenge the optimistic narrative on declining inflation. I think we're going to need to see some more data that disappoints on inflation before we see more serious reactions to that data in the market. But the real key is going to be how gold and the dollar react to hotter than expected inflation. Are we finally going to see investors figuring out that higher inflation is bad for the dollar and good for gold because right now they're not focusing on the reality of higher inflation, but on the Fed's fight and the fact that it may have to raise interest rates more and leave them higher for longer 
to succeed in returning inflation to 2%. But once investors realize that all the bad news means that inflation's not going to go back to 2% and the Fed's going to fail in its mission, that's when the dollar tanks and gold and silver prices really take off. 